Friends, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. This morning's reading will be taken from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. If you're using a church Bible, one of the little black ones at the front, that's page 758. Saints of God, listen as I read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. This is what Holy Scripture says. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder if you've ever thought before about just how different the Christian life would be if all God cared about was external things. So what, how would it be different if God just didn't care what you love? He didn't care what you desire. He didn't care what attitude you display. So what if the only thing that really mattered was the actions you actually take and the words you actually say? What if God would be perfectly content, perfectly satisfied with you if all you ever did was just grudgingly obey the letter of the law? In some ways, it would be easier. I suppose the sum total of your religion would just be following a list of rules, engaging your conformity to God through following rules. But I also know that it would make you absolutely miserable. I know this for a number of reasons, but one is something I heard from a friend of mine. He once spent time with members of a different religion, and when he was with them, he asked them, well, should I follow your faith? Should I bow the knee to your God? And you know what they said? They said, no, don't do it. Don't follow our God, because if you follow our God, you have to follow all the rules that we need to follow, and it just makes us miserable. So don't do it. Save yourself from that. That actually happened. Now imagine Imagine if the Christian life was like that. You're following this faith, but it's just this long, bitter, grudging obedience that you wouldn't wish upon anyone else. 
Thankfully, it isn't. And I think you know that. Thankfully, it isn't. The Christian life is a life of joy, a life of joyful obedience. But why is it a life of joy? It's a life of joy because before God asks you to change your outer self, He changes your inner self. He transforms you at the deepest level, the level of your thoughts, of your longings, of your desires. See, God doesn't want you to just obey Him in the outer person. He wants you to love Him in the inner person. And so God begins His work in you by changing you on the inside, and this then makes following Him, obeying Him, the highest of joys, the the sweetest of delights. So today we're picking up this series we've been calling The Upside Down Kingdom, in which we're looking at each one of the Beatitudes, those statements in Matthew 5 that each begin with the word blessed. Do you probably remember that the word blessed simply means something like happy, content, knowing you have the affirmation of God. We come to verse 8 today, the words spoken by the mouth of Jesus, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And what I want us to observe today is this, to see God, your heart must be pure. To know the pleasure of being in a relationship with God that begins here and then extends on into endless eternity, you must have a heart that is marked by purity. Or said very shortly, the pure heart sees. For our purposes today, I think it might be best if we begin with what it means to see God. We've been singing about it. We will sing about it more, but let's see what it means to see God, and then we'll look at what Jesus says about the heart, and then we'll learn what it is to be pure, and then at last we'll put it all together as we ponder this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So first, what does it mean to see? What does it mean to see God? In the English language, we use the word see in a couple of different ways. We use see when we actually focus our eyes on something, I see the bird. We also say we see something when we come to understand it. Do you see what I mean? There you go. The Bible uses it in both of those ways as well. And that helps direct us to what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. It's important to know that when Jesus says they shall see God, he's he's saying something that doesn't translate all that well into English, something like they shall be seeing God. It's a seeing that begins here and then extends indefinitely. So it's not just a future thing that happens far from now. So with those two uses of the word see, we fix our eyes on it and we understand it. Let's consider what Jesus meant when he said they shall see God. When we become Christians, we begin to observe evidences of God's existence and God's power that we may not have seen before, we may have denied before. You might say that when we become Christians, the eyes of our hearts are open so we can see, so we can understand. So like David in that psalm we just sang, we look at creation, we say, the heavens declare the glory of God. We see it now. God is the creator. Like Solomon, we observe providence. We say, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. We see it. God is sovereign. We didn't see it before, but we see it now. Like Paul, we read scripture and we say, all scripture is breathed out by God. We see it. 
This book is authored by God himself. Like Peter, we ponder Jesus and we say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We see it. Jesus is God. We didn't see it before. We see it now. We profess it. We understand it. We see these things not with our eyes, but with our understanding. And so the first thing Jesus is communicating then when he says that some people see God is that they live in this world seeing God through the eyes of faith. They see God in the sense they understand who he is. They understand what he's done. They understand what he requires of us. And then they respond in a way that's appropriate. But there's another sense in which people shall see God, a more literal sense. Let me ask, have you ever seen God? Have your eyes ever focused on someone or something and you said, I saw God yesterday? I think you probably have not. I hope you have not. The Bible says repeatedly we cannot see God. We can't see God because first, we're not worthy to be in his presence in the first place. And second, God can't be seen. God is in God the Father. He's real but he has no form. He has no bodily presence for us to see. And yet the Bible does say that we can and we will see God. As we get to the concluding verses of the entire scripture, we read this promise. This applies to all Christians. They will see his face. It's not talking about Jesus here. It's talking about God. They will see his face. That promise there draws from a number of different threads that are woven together in the Old Testament, like Psalm 24, which Steve read for us earlier. Passages like that is repeated in the New Testament. We will see God. Human beings who were sent out of the presence of God when they sinned will be welcomed back into the presence of God. The great promise of eternity is this, that we'll be in God's presence, that we will see God. So is the Bible contradicting itself? You could see some, you could probably go online and find somebody who's holding up this as an example of how the Bible contradicts itself. How can we see God when God cannot be seen? What we learn throughout the scripture is that there are some people who will be in the presence of God in such a way that they will see God insofar as God can be seen. We've said that God the Father has no physical form. So these people won't literally see his face because he's got no face to see. But that wording does help us understand something. It helps us understand that they will be in his most personal presence. They will see and experience his glory. They will see and experience his presence. They will see and experience a kind of relational closeness, a relational intimacy with him that we just don't on this earth. Something so far beyond what we experience here. If right now we see through a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. That's the the picture that the Bible sets up. And so whoever these blessed people are that Jesus is talking about in this beatitude, they've got two wonderful blessings. They begin to relate to God now. They see him in that way. And in the future, they will enter his personal presence, see him in that way. So that then makes us wonder, how could we be blessed to that extent? How could we be blessed to that extent that we shall see God? Is there something I need to do? 
there's something I need to accomplish? Is there some list of rules I need to obey if I want that to be true of me? Not quite. Our beatitude tells us that it all revolves around the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, which means we need to consider the heart. Now, what can a heart do? What actions do we associate with the human heart? A heart can, of course, beat. A heart can race. A heart can stop. That's all very literal. That speaks to the heart as a physical part of our bodies, as an organ. But that's not the only way we speak of the heart. We also use the heart to speak of emotions. We use it as a metaphor. And so we say the heart can long, and the heart can love, and the heart can hurt, and the heart can break. So then the way we think, this culture, this language, this time in history, the, the heart is physical and the heart is emotional. We use it in both senses. How does the Bible use heart? You know, the New Testament uses the word heart well over a hundred times, but never once to refer to the organ that's inside your chest. It only ever uses heart as a metaphor, as a word picture, drawing your reality to something else. So what can the heart do according to the Bible? I took some time this week and I looked up all the, the uses just in the New Testament and came up with a list of the things the human heart can do according to the authors of Scripture. A heart can think, a heart can understand, a heart can desire, a heart can speak, a heart can doubt or believe, it can love or hate, it can repent or remain impenitent. A heart can be dull or sharp, hard or soft, open or closed, downcast or refreshed, right or wrong, sincere or hypocritical. The heart can have longings and it can have secrets and it can have purposes. The heart can produce good or evil. The heart can be filled by the Holy Spirit or by Satan. The heart can stay near to God or wander far from Him. And of course, from our text today, we know the heart can be pure or the heart can be impure. And so in the way the biblical authors thought of the heart, the way they used it as a a word picture, it's far more than emotion. It's the place where our actions originate. It's a place where our words originate and our longings and our motives and our convictions and our worship and our affections. So the heart is a place of emotion, but also of reason and of motive and of longing. The the, the heart is a place from which we issue orders to the rest of ourselves. The, The heart is the place where God's influence comes into contact with man's will to be accepted or rejected, to be obeyed or to be disobeyed, which means the heart is the very moral center of a human being, not just emotion, it's all of that, the the moral center of a person. So you might say the heart is the the controller for the radio control car. That car is just going to sit there and do nothing until you turn a dial or you turn a knob and then the car will respond. It will respond to the commands that are given to it from the controller. Or the heart is the mission control center at NASA. It tells the astronauts what to do. They won't do anything until they're instructed to, they're told to from the mission control center. Just like that, we won't say anything, we won't 
do anything. We won't even desire anything without the heart first issuing that order. So none of our abilities, none of our faculties operate independently of the heart. And as you read the Gospels, you see that the heart was always of foremost importance to Jesus. He was very concerned with the heart. Why? Why did he focus on it so much? Well, because he knew our tendency is always to ignore the heart, the inner man, and focus instead on behavior, the outer man. That's easier, and it's just far easier for us to see. So we can content ourselves with focusing only on what's outside, ignoring what's on the inside. So it's exactly the case with those religious authorities who are always opposing Jesus. You read about them all throughout the Gospels. They were obsessed with the outer man, but didn't care a whole lot about the inner man. They made sure they obeyed the letter of the Old Testament law. They even created all kinds of other laws so they could obey them. But they obeyed them in a way that was without love, devoid of love for God, devoid of love for others. They were absolutely scrupulous when it came to the form of their religion, what showed on the outside. So their beatitude might have been, blessed are the pure in hands, for God will be pleased with them. Or, blessed are those who follow all the rules, for they have earned the favor of God. Something along those lines. They looked so holy on the outside, but inside they were full of hatred, full of rebellion, not love, not submission. And so Jesus was constantly warning them not to neglect the inner man while obsessing with the outer man. So he would give warnings like, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You look all clean and neat on the outside, but inside you're just full of death. You're full of decay. Or you're like a cup. It's been cleaned. It's all shiny and clean on the outside, but inside it's full of poison. Outwardly, very good and upright. Inwardly, morally rotten. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's a good time to pause and be honest with ourselves, I think. We can be like those people, can't we? Jesus might just have been speaking to us as well, not just to those people. Because any of us can just go through the motions. Any of us can come to church every Sunday morning, maybe we come Sunday evenings, maybe we come Wednesday evenings, we do it all. Any of us can raise our hands in worship and look very pious doing it. Any of us can give money to good causes. These are all good things. They're all good things, but only if they're flowing out of a heart that is devoted to God. And so we need to always be checking. We always need to be examining ourselves. Are we doing these things so we look good to others? Or are we doing these things because we genuinely love the Lord and this is the flowing out of our love for God? Or are we doing these things to try to convince God to love us? God, just look at all these things I'm doing. Now surely you'll love me or love me more. Or do we know God loves us and we love God? And again, this is just the outflow of our love for Him. Are we ultimately doing these things to glorify ourselves or ultimately to bring glory to God? It's always true that the heart is the heart of the matter. You know, maybe we could also just think for a moment about the difference between teaching and preaching. This is something we do every week, right? Every week you spend a period of time listening to somebody up here preach a sermon. 
So let's talk about the difference between teaching and preaching or the difference between a lecture and a sermon. If someone teaches the Bible to you, say in a seminary class or one of our foundations classes, they're primarily appealing to the mind, primarily appealing to the intellect, and that is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But where teaching appeals primarily to the mind, preaching is meant to appeal primarily to the heart. And again, not not the physical organ, not just your emotions, but to the heart as the Bible understands it, that very center, moral center of yourself. So when we stand up here Sunday by Sunday and we preach a sermon, we preach the Word, we want to engage your mind, we want to increase your knowledge of God and His works and His ways, but we don't want it to end there. We want to appeal to your heart. We want to appeal to that part of you that involves your motives, your decisions, your affections, your deepest inner self. So our goal is not to badger you into conforming your behavior to the Bible's standard. That's not what we're doing. Our goal is to persuade you to fully devote your heart to the Lord. We want to see life change as a natural outworking of heart change. So that's what preaching is about. It's appealing to your heart to change so then the rest of you will change out of, from the heart. That leads nicely to the next key word. We've learned that some people will see God. We've learned that the heart is key to this. We now need to consider what kind of heart is key. And as you may guess, it's a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So what does it mean to be pure, to be pure in the eyes of God? We, we usually use the word pure to speak specifically of sexual purity. In fact, men, there's a men's meeting this evening that's focused on that. It'd be a very good thing to come to, learn about that part of what it means to be pure. But in this beatitude, we need to understand that's not what Jesus is aiming at. He's aiming at something much, much wider in, when he speaks about purity. And there are two big ideas contained within his word pure, the idea of undivided and the idea of sinless. To be pure is to be undivided or to be fully and solely devoted to God, and to be pure is to be sinless or to be unspoiled by depravity. We need to consider each one of those briefly. To to be pure is to be undivided, is to be unalloyed, is to be unmixed. So you know that gold can be pure, 100% gold, Or gold can be mixed with another metal, can be alloyed. And just like that, the way God looks at us, we can be pure or impure. We can be 100% committed to God and committed to His cause. Or we can be partially committed to God and partially committed to His cause. We can say we're loyal to God. We can stand here and do all the right things on Sunday, but then we can go out and find the rest of our lives as just showing that we're loyal to some other force or some other desire or some other lust that captivates us or controls us. We can give God our Sundays, but then give the rest of the days of the week to feeding lusts or gaining control over others or piling up wealth in ways that are unjust, unfair. We can read aloud the words of the Apostles' Creed and say, I believe this. But then we can effectively live by a different creed, a creed of personal autonomy. I'm the boss. I'm the ruler. I'm God the rest of the week. So it's not that hard to give God the outer part of us 
but to hold back the inner part of us. And so in these ways and so many more, our faith can be impure. It can be impure like water that's mixed with arsenic, impure like gold that's been alloyed with copper. Yet God makes it clear that we only really love Him if we love Him more than anyone or anything else, if we love Him to the exclusion of any greater loves. I have a question I want to ask the kids. Question for the kids, and kids, thanks for being here today. I think it's so neat that you sit in the services and you get to listen to the sermon. It's a, it's a big encouragement for us as the grown-ups to know you're here and to know you're listening. It means a lot, so thank you for being here. But I do have a question for you. Have you ever seen anyone flying a drone? It's kind of fun to watch someone flying a drone, right? We're very used to seeing the world from the ground up, but when you're flying a drone, you get to see the world from the sky down. It's a totally different perspective on the world, and it's, it's neat. I want to imagine that one day you're, you're at the park and you're watching your dad fly a drone. Only dads fly drones, moms don't. So dad's flying a drone. And he's taking it way up in the sky, and he's recording some video, and he's taking some pictures, and he's zooming all over the place. It's fun. But then something funny happens. Somebody else shows up, and it turns out that he has a controller for your dad's drone as well. And so dad's telling the drone to go this way, but that guy's telling it to go that way. And dad's telling the drone to go up, and he's telling it to go down. It's all swerving all over the place. What's going to happen to that drone? It's going to crash, right? Nobody's controlling it. Your dad needs to do something. He needs to go over to the other person and he needs to pull, just pop that cable out and say, this is my drone. I own it, so I control this drone. And Jesus once said something kind of like that, except there weren't drones back there. So he said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. No one can serve two masters in their life, just like no drone can obey two different controllers. Each of us can only be controlled by one thing or one person. And so the question each one of us needs to ask, and that's true whether we're grown-ups, whether we're young, whether we're old, whether we're kids, we need to ask this, am I letting God control me? Will I let God control me? Or will I let someone else or something else control me? To become a Christian is to put our faith in Jesus and we say, God, I want you to be the boss in my life. I want you to control me. I want to live the way you tell me to live. And so have you done that? You're not too old. You're not too young to just hand the controls to God and say, I'm yours. I'll follow you. I'll obey you. That's what it is to be a Christian. When Jesus talked about being pure, he talked about being controlled by just one thing, by God. And so to be pure is to be completely committed to God in our every part, to place ourselves completely in his hands, is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first part of what it means to be pure. The second part is to be sinless is to be unspoiled, untainted by evil. So James wrote about religion that is pure and undefiled before God. A, a kind of religion, a kind of living out your convictions that's unmarred by any sin whatsoever. 
Paul told Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. So the truest love issues from a heart that's unblemished by sin. And so in this sense, to be pure is to be sinless, is to be clean, undefiled, unmarked, unmarred by sin and by sinfulness. It's like a dress that is unstained. It's like a mirror that is unscratched. It's like a work of art that is unblemished. And so we have two senses of the word pure. To be pure is to be undivided and to be sinless, to be completely loyal and completely perfect. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Okay, so we've considered what it means to see God. We've considered what Jesus meant by the heart. And we've seen what it means to be pure. Now we just need to put it all together. And maybe one way we could do that is to try and rephrase the beatitude, try and find some other words that can express the truth. So how about happy are those who are undivided and sinless in the inner man for they shall see the acts of God now and see the face of God in the future. Or, affirmed by God are those who are completely sincere in their motives and desires and actions, for they will live now and forever in his presence. Or in very few words, the pure heart sees. That's what Jesus was expressing in his beatitude. And so here it is. If you have a perfect history of being unblemished in your every thought and every desire and every motive, if you are and have always been 100% committed to God without, without the least deviation, I've got really good news for you. You shall see God. Congratulations. The unfortunate part is you'll be seeing God alone. Uh, I won't be there, certainly. None of the members of this church will be there, I know that. Earlier in the service, we had a time where we confessed our sins. Did, did anyone opt out because you just had no sins to confess and no forgiveness to receive from the Lord? If you participated in that as, as we did, it's proof. It's proof that you're not perfect. It's proof that you're not undivided. None of us are. We still sin. We may sin in ways that are less grievous than we once did, that's a beautiful thing, but we still sin. We may be more loyal to God now than we were in the past, and that's truly wonderful, but sometimes we still obey the wrong master. And so as we ponder this beatitude, I, I wonder if you're asking the question I had to ask. What about those of us who aren't completely pure? What if my heart isn't completely sinless? What if my loyalties aren't completely undivided? What if yesterday I, I pilfered some money or did something dishonest? What if I lied to get ahead a little? What if I dedicated a whole evening to wasting time or just looking at terrible things on the internet? What if I gossiped? What if I harmed somebody? What if I spent my week obeying the orders of another controller? Is there any hope for me? I've got some good news for you. The fact that you see your lack of purity and the fact that this troubles you 
is evidence that God's at work within you. The fact that you see the dividedness of your own heart and that this grieves you, this is proof that God is transforming you. See, the pure heart is not the heart that's pure on its own account, not the heart that's pure through its own effort. The pure heart is the heart that has been purified, has been purified by God. In other words, the pure heart is the Christian heart, the heart that has been committed to the Lord, the heart that has been justified by the Lord, the heart that is being sanctified by the Lord, the heart that will be glorified, perfected by the Lord. It's the heart that is becoming less and less sinful, less and less divided. The heart that's that's becoming more holy and more fully committed, more single-minded in its pursuit of the Lord. I know it seems counterintuitive, but you can know that your heart is pure in the eyes of God when you're You're just soul-sick over how impure it is. And if that's true of you, if you confessed your sins earlier, you see the sinfulness within, you see the divided loyalties within, and that grieves you, you confess your sin, take heart. Accept God's forgiveness. Press on. I want to consider one more verse here just as we wrap up another verse that mentions this this great notion of seeing God. It comes near the end of the Bible. It speaks of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it tells us that one day we will return to the earth. It says this, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. A day is coming. We don't know when it is. God only knows when that day is. A day is coming when Jesus will return to earth and bring an end to to history as we know it, and everyone will see him. There will be no escaping the fact that he is real. There will be no escaping the fact that he has come in judgment. And at that time, he he will do this work of separation. He will separate the people who love him from the people who do not which is just another way of saying he will separate those who are pure from those who are impure. Those who are pure in heart will see God for all eternity in his grace, in his mercy, in his love. Those who are impure in heart will see God for all eternity in his judgment, in his wrath, in his disfavor. My friends, you will see God There's no escaping it. You will see God. You will see God the Son returning to judge the living and the dead, returning to judge you and me. It is better by far to see him with a pure heart than a defiled one, to see him with a sincere heart than a divided one. So my sincere counsel to you is to turn to him in repentance and faith. Ask him to make you pure, pure in heart. And then you'll be able to rejoice and know and and anticipate this beautiful promise, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God and smile. 
They shall see God and worship. They shall see God and rejoice forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, that is our prayer. That is our deep desire that there would not be one who's in this room today who would see Christ, would see you in judgment. We pray that each one of us would turn to you in repentance and faith, that each one of us would be pure in heart. Help us not to think we need to clean ourselves up, make ourselves pure, but to know we need to turn to you so you can make us pure. You can give us the purity we do not have and cannot generate from ourselves. Pray that each one of us would love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pray that each one of us would long for the day when Christ returns. Look forward to to the day when we shall see Christ and we shall see you. Amen.